Amen. Please be seated. It is good to see all of you here this day. And as we continue our overview of the fruit of the Spirit, I ask you please to turn with me once again in your copy of the Scriptures to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, picking up at verse 13, and I'll read to verse 26 in your hearing. Galatians chapter 5, at verse 13, here is Paul is now applying the gospel which he just defended and explained in the previous chapters, he writes now the following and says, Galatians 5 at verse 13, Paul writes by the direction and aid of the Holy Spirit the following words. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity of the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit. And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, let's once again pray and ask the Lord's blessings on our time. Let's pray together. Our great and glorious God, what a wonderful privilege we have this day. To worship you once again in the beauty of holiness. With all of our hearts, all of our souls, minds, and strength. We are grateful, O God, that you have given us such a royal and regal opportunity. All purchased because of the bloodletting of Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you, O great God, for these wonderful things. 
And we're grateful, O oh God, even as Bob read to us just a little while ago that for many in this place, we are your adopted children. We now are part of your family, the redeemed of the Lord, no longer outside of the covenant of grace. Thank you, Lord, for loving the likes of us when we were very unlovable. Thank you, Lord, for going after many of us in this place with an outstretched hand and having redeemed us and then making us your very own. Oh God, we ascribe all worship to you this day. We bless your name from the depths of our being. We praise you, oh great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as we come now to your word, great God, we're asking that you would give us help. We're asking, O oh God, that you would send the Spirit to us for, as Jesus said, it is the Spirit that giveth life. It is the Spirit that quickens. And so, blessed Holy Spirit, come and do your work among us in this regard. We do ask and we pray all of these things in and through that wonderful name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In his helpful book entitled, If You Bite and Devour One Another, subtitled, Biblical Principles for Handling Conflict, author Alexander Strzok helpfully summarizes the verses that I just read in your hearing when he says that, quote, when conflict arises, our attitudes and behaviors should reflect our new life in Christ given to us by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. He says that you and I who are the people of God are to quote display the fruit of the Spirit and not the works of the flesh for we are to walk in step with the Spirit's leading being spirit-controlled, not flesh-controlled, or out of control. Now, dear uh, brothers and sisters here this morning, I absolutely believe that the author is correct in what he says, and really, when you and I consider much of the contentious infighting and unnecessary divisions that plague many churches in our day, no doubt much of it comes from professed believers living according to the flesh and not walking in the Spirit. Now, of course, this was something which was even happening in Paul's churches in the first century, as obviously the case was with the Galatian churches, Therefore, because all of these things are so, this is something which you and I must always be on guard against. 
We must always watch out for it in our own lives, turning from all sin whenever it rears its ugly head. And why? Well, the answer is plain, and it's because the honor of our great God is involved in all of this. The answer is because if we live like this, it's not only that which, according to Proverbs chapter 6, is on God's hate list, but it's also that which violates the many commands of Holy Scripture for us to love one another and to not be those who through sin cause the great name of our great God to be blasphemed among the lost. Well, because this is so, I want all of us in this place to rightly understand our subject at hand. I want all of us to get it properly and this so that we can live in its helpful instruction all of our days. Now because this is my desire, as I just stated, I thought that it would be good for us to consider just one more sermon as a general overview to our section in view here in Galatians chapter 5. Before we actually come to look at each individual fruit of the Spirit as they are listed here in this chapter, I want us to get Paul's teaching up to this point correctly for in doing this, you and I will have a good handle on our material. And so, as we come then for today to consider a bit more closely our topic in view, I ask you then to please notice with me first from verses 13 to 15 of this chapter, the conflict, the conflict. Here once again, Paul writes saying, look at the words with me there in your copy of the scriptures. He says, for you brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Now, I believe that a Bible commentator and scholar Douglas Moo is correct when he says here that the main focus of Paul from verse 13 of this chapter all the way to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 is that of relationships between the brethren in the church. This is the case, and so Paul here in our opening verses for today wants to be sure that the Christians in Galatia were not using their freedom in the gospel in order to become occasions for sinful conduct against the brethren in the church. And so you see, dear ones here this morning, while the Galatian believers had received freedom through the gospel, which is to say freedom from all self-effort in order to be made right with God, and freedom from the curse and condemnation of the law, listen, this did not mean that they were free to act sinfully, 
so as to do what they wished among themselves in contradiction to God's holy word. No, this absolutely was not the case. And why? Well, it's because true biblical gospel freedom never allows for this. It never allows for a license for you and I to live in spiritual anarchy. No, but rather, as I said last week, our gospel freedom is always a call to live in obedience to Jesus and to his word. And it is to express itself in loving service toward one another in the congregation. Now apparently, and quite evidently, some of the Galatian churches had missed this point. So that again, Paul says here, picking up in verse 13 of this chapter, look at the words with me again in your Bibles. He writes saying in verses 13 and 14 of Galatians chapter 5, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty only, look at the word, only do not use your liberty as an opportunity or an occasion for the flesh. Which is to say, not our literal physical flesh, no, but our old humanness, which has not been completely transformed. But Paul says, but, or in strong opposition to this, through or by means of love, serve or become true servants to one another. And why? Well, he tells us next when he says in verse 14, for all the law, that is the law stated in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, is fulfilled or summed up in one word. What is it, Paul? Here it is. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which, as Luther said, is every man, especially the one who has need of my help. Now, obviously, there's much that could be said about these words here in view at this time. However, dear ones, it's crucial that you and I see that according to the apostle here, it's this self-sacrificing, other, individual-focused, agape love that would help the Galatian churches, and us as well, to avoid all internal conflicts that we might ever have in this place. Oh, dear ones, I say that this is the case. Thus, a Paul here in quoting that Leviticus text in Leviticus chapter 19 says concerning the second use of the law of God, or I might say better, the second table of the law of God with reference to our relationships with others. He says, look, that it's fulfilled in one word, even in this. What's the word, Paul? It is that we are to love, not hate, not despise, not look down our noses at others, no, but we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, concerning the internal strife in the churches in Galatia, it's quite hard to dogmatically say what it was all centered in. However, most commentators are agreed that it was either due to legalism on the part of some false teachers there, or 
in connection to licentiousness on the part of others. I mean, these are typically the two extremes which are found in the churches, whereby, again, you have people who are either a very legalistic, who make up their own rules in the church for the Christian life, and then they get all upset when others don't follow those man-made rules. Or, on the other hand, there are those who live very loosely, not thinking that they are under any of the commands of Scripture, Consequently, they live quite lawlessly and cause the brethren in the church to stumble, all the while proclaiming that they are free in Christ to do as they like. Well, dear ones here this day, clearly both groups are wrong. This is the case, and again, that such things were causing problems in the Galatian churches, <clears throat> it seems clear by what Paul says in verse 15 of this chapter. When he writes there, and look at the words in your Bibles, he says, but if you bite and devour one another, beware, look out, be on guard, lest, Paul says, you be consumed by one another. Now, these words here by Paul give us the exact opposite disposition that you and I as the people of God are to have with reference to loving one another in this place just as Paul spoke of in the previous words. The exact opposite disposition, biting and devouring one another. Now what's so striking here in this language by Paul is that in it, he's using the imagery of wild animals violently attacking one another and this as a graphic illustration of what happens in the church when disobedient Christians do not love and serve one another just as they are commanded to do. In fact, one writer even says that this comparison here describes, quote, mad beasts fighting each other so ferociously that they end up killing each other. Now, dear ones here this day, step back with me for a moment and ask yourselves, can you imagine that the Apostle Paul here is actually speaking about such things as this happening among the professed people of God? I mean, could you imagine it? It's quite shocking. Stop biting and devouring one another lest you become consumed. Is Paul writing to Christians here? He actually is. Christians who, by the way, are called, for example, to be like their Savior, who describes himself in Matthew chapter 11 as being gentle and lowly in heart. I mean, this is shocking. And if you're not shocked by it, maybe something's wrong with you. Stop biting and devouring one another. These are not unsaved people. These are professed Christians. I say it's shocking. And yet, sadly, it's true in the lives of some. Thus, it needs to be turned from 
quickly? For as Calvin rightly says, quote, how distressing, how mad it is that we who are the members of the same body should come together for, or rather, of our own accord, and this for mutual destruction. Calvin says, how mad is it, how distressing that this should be the case. Well, in view of this, beloved ones here this day, I must pause to say, may God help each and every one of us in this place to never act in such a sinful way toward one another. Right? I must pause to say, may God help us not to gobble one another up, no, but rather to build one another up. For in doing this, we do good to each one and so glorify the name of our great God. Well, having spoken then of some relational conflict among the Galatians, come with me now secondly. To note in verse 16 of this chapter, Paul's command, his command. Here, as he now gives us the remedy, the cure, to all of the carnal negativity that he just spoke of. He writes saying here, note the words again with me in your Bibles, Galatians 5 and verse 16, I say then, here is his apostolic command, I, the Apostle Paul, say then. Here's the answer to all that negativity and carnality. Underline it in your Bibles if you must. Walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, I am right in calling. These words here are command. And this is because they come to us as a present active imperative in the original language. And this means that this call here to walk in the Spirit, so that we do not carry out the remaining evil desires of the flesh, is that which is to be our habitual practice as Christians by the help and grace of God. Ah, but having said this, What does this actually mean? Well, let me speak about this matter in two ways, by speaking firstly about its assumption, and then secondly about its definition. And so know with me first, its assumption, which is to say that for someone to walk in the Spirit, which is to say the Holy Spirit of God means that the Holy Spirit of God is in them. Right? That's the assumption of our passage. Well, brethren, I say it means that they, in fact, have been born from above by the Spirit of God and that He now resides in them. For if this were not the case, the command here by the Apostle Paul to walk in the Spirit would be absolutely impossible to fulfill. Now, apparently... The apostle believed that the Galatians had the Holy Spirit. For in chapter 3 of this book, he says that this was the case, saying to them there that they had received the Spirit by faith. That's what he says. They received the Spirit 
quote, when they believed. Ah, but having said this, secondly now, not only should we consider the assumption of the whole matter, but we also need a definition of what it means to walk in the Spirit. And so here, I want to say that it means that you and I who are true Christians conduct ourselves by or through the power of the Holy Spirit and this is we seek to obey all that he's laid out for us to do in the word of God which he himself inspired for us to walk in. What does it mean to walk in the Holy Spirit? Well it means again that you and I who are Christians we conduct ourselves by or through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is we seek to obey all that the Holy Spirit has laid out for us to do in the Word of God, which he himself inspired for us to walk in. Now church, uh, this is what it means, in my opinion, to walk in or by the strength of the Holy Spirit. So that this is not something which is mystical, no, but rather scriptural. Not mystical, but scriptural. You see, to walk in the Holy Spirit means that by the help that he gives us who are Christians, you and I are to walk in line with the way that he's laid out for us in the word, submitting to all of it in complete dependence upon him for this. It means that we are to look to him daily. For help in this regard. Help me, O Holy Spirit, to walk in your ways. And when we do this, what will be the result? Well, it will be, according to the context of our words, that we will not use our liberty as an occasion for the flesh, no, but rather we will be walking in the various fruits of the Spirit such as love and joy, etc. And why? Well, the answer is because the fruits of the Spirit actually describe for us what walking in the Spirit is all about. And so you see, church, as this good and godly fruit is produced in our various attitudes and actions, you and I can be confident that we, in fact, are walking in, with, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is because this is what the Holy Spirit helps us to do, we who are true Christians. And so simply stated, or summarily speaking, walking in the Holy Spirit includes both direction and empowerment to do all of God's holy will. It includes both the path that we are to walk in and the person who helps us to accomplish this And this so that, again, as the Apostle Paul says in 16b of this chapter, we will not fulfill or keep on gratifying 
the sinful lust or evil cravings of the flesh. And so, having just given us his command in verse 16 of this chapter, come with me now thirdly. To note Paul's clarification for this, that what he says next in verses 17 and 18 of this chapter here, as he tells us why it is that we are to walk in the Holy Spirit, he says first in verse 17 of this chapter, note the words with me there again in your Bibles, he writes saying, for the explanatory word, here it is, here's the clarification, the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these two are contrary or at odds with one another to what end here it is so that you do not do the things that you wish or we might say want now uh, here in these words the ones I just read in your hearing the apostle gives us a portrait of the internal struggle that all true Christians go through from time to time. Here we see something of what the Apostle speaks of concerning the Christian life in Romans chapter 7 where he writes there saying in verses 18 and 19 of this chapter quote for I know that in me that is in my flesh again my fallen human nature which still remains that nothing good dwells. Why, Paul? Well, he tells us, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Why, Paul? Well, he tells us again, for uh, the good that I will to do, that I don't do, and the evil that I would not do, Paul says, that I practice. Now again, as I said just a moment ago, uh, this is what happens at times in the lives of all true Christians as they battle with remaining sin. This is the case. Ah, but having said this, blessed be God that the apostle goes on to tell us in that same chapter in Romans 7 that even though at times sin did get the upper hand in his life, nonetheless, he could thank God that through Jesus Christ his Lord, more times than not, he found great victory. Yes, through his union with Jesus, Paul found triumph through Christ, and this by the power of the Holy Spirit, and this in order to mortify or put to death the deeds of the body, just as Paul will go on to speak of in Romans chapter 8. Well, concerning the Spirit's help. Uh, Paul speaks here once again of him in Galatians 5 and verse 18. When he says, look again at the words with me there in your Bibles, he writes saying, but if you are led by the Spirit, that is to say governed and empowered by him, to resist the sinful temptations of the flesh by saying no to sin and yes to the Savior, then Paul says you are not under the law. Now, what law is Paul speaking of here? Well, to me, it seems that in this context where he's been talking about the flesh waging war against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, that he's talking about the law or the 
regime of sin. Of sin. Here Paul says that Christians who are led by the Spirit of God to live as God would have them to live, especially in this context, in the church towards the brethren, are no longer under the rule or the dominion of sin so as to continue to live in it. And why? Well, the answer is simple. And it's because through the enablement of the Holy Spirit, in their sanctification, Christians are enabled to have regularly, regular victory over it and praise God for this. They're not under the law and bondage of sin, no. But they're under, as it were, the law and the bondage of the Holy Spirit who empowers them to live righteous lives. And so here again is Paul's remedy, his antidote, his cure for how it is that you and I as Christians can live lifestyles which do not cause trouble in the church. Here Paul is not speaking of legalism, nor is he speaking of licentiousness, no, but rather he's speaking about a life that is led by the Spirit, governed by the Spirit according to Holy Scripture, being strengthened by the Holy Spirit so as to live as God would have us to live according to His Word. Legalism won't help us. Licentiousness won't help us, no. But a life which is led and governed by the Holy Spirit, now that will help us. I say then, walk in the Spirit. And so, having clarified his point, come with me now fourthly to note for today from verses 19 to 21 of this chapter, the corruption. Here, as Paul lists, a whole bunch of sins which would have been familiar to the Galatians from their pagan backgrounds. We could summarize them broadly under three headings of sexual sins. Secondly, superstitious or religious sins. And then thirdly, social sins. Now, of course we do well to ask why was it that the Apostle Paul here, at this point in this letter, was led to list all these gross sins while writing to the various churches of Galatia. Well, while not being exhaustive, I believe that he did this, again, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, in order to remind the various believers in these churches, firstly, of what they had been delivered from, and then secondly, what they were to continue to avoid all of their days with the help and grace of God. You see, brethren, here, Paul is speaking broadly about sin. Sin which God hates. And he tells the Galatians about these various sins so that, again, they would seek to avoid these sins at all costs. Avoid all sexual sins, superstitious sins, and social sins. Paul says, do it at all cost. And so, 
as he writes to the Galatians in this regard, he starts off in verse 19 of this chapter by saying, note the words with me there again in your Bibles. He says, now the works, or we might say the deeds, plural, of the flesh, again, our remaining human fallenness, even as Christians. The works are evident or plain, clearly seen. What are they, Paul? Here you go. Adultery, which is to say a violation of the marriage covenant by having sexual relations with someone who is not our spouse. Second, he speaks of fornication. Here the Greek word is pornea, from which is derived our English word pornography. And it has a broad meaning which refers to all illicit sexual activity, including fornication or sex before marriage, homosexuality, bestiality, and prostitution, etc. A third, he speaks of uncleanness or impurity, which speaks about profane living. Fourth, he speaks about lewdness or unbridled lust. Fifth, he speaks about idolatry or false worship. Sixth, he speaks of sorcery or witchcraft. Seventh, he speaks of hatred or enmity. Eighth, contentions or strife. Ninth is jealousy or hateful resentment caused by coveting what belongs to someone else. Tenth is outburst of wrath or unrestrained hostility or anger towards another. Eleventh is selfish ambition or self-centered desires which thinks of no one else but self. Twelfth is dissensions or divisions. Thirteenth is heresies or false teaching. Fourteenth is envy or bitterness because of what someone has and we don't. Fifteenth is murders or the unjust taking of another's life, a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Sixteenth is drunkenness, which involves impaired mental or physical control as a result of consuming too much alcohol. And then seventeenth is revelries, or unrestrained partying. And then Paul says, look at the words, and the like. Which again means that his list here is not exhaustive, as I said earlier. And then he says, of which I told you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things or are continually living in them without true repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says that they will not inherit the kingdom of God, which simply means that in the final analysis, they will not go to heaven. Now, we have here again in these words before us, a huge, a big list of sins, which we who have been saved by the free grace of God and Jesus Christ our Lord have been delivered from. And yet, brethren, we still need to avoid such things at all cost. Here Paul mentions all kinds of evils. For he does not only speak about so-called major sins, such as adultery and fornication, no, but he even mentions so-called lesser sins, such as jealousies and envies and outbursts of wrath and selfish ambition, which many people still get tripped up in, 
even the people of God. And so, in view of all of these things, church, the question now is, if you and I are not going to bring forth such bad fruit in our lives, what then must come forth from us? Well, having seen the conflict, the command, the clarification, and the corruption, come with me now fifthly to answer the question by noting in verse 22a of this chapter the contrast. Here as Paul speaks about how it is that we as Christians can avoid bringing such evil things forth in our lives, he writes, positively speaking now, saying, look at the words, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, is joy, is peace, etc. Now, as most of you are aware, we are going to be looking at all of these specific fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists here in the days ahead. However, for now, I just want us to briefly note that as the Apostle has just finished explaining the things which you and I as Christians are not to partake in, that as he begins this new verse, he does so with the powerful little word, but. But, says Paul. Or, in contrast to all the horrible sins that he's been speaking of, there's something completely different which is produced in the true children of God who have the Holy Spirit of God residing in them. Now, this language here, look at it in your Bibles, of the fruit of the Spirit, this language, the fruit of the Spirit, that is to say the Holy Spirit, is significant. And I say this because the words of the Spirit are in the genitive case in the Greek language, and here it's a genitive of source, or we might say a genitive of origin. And so you ask, Pastor Ventura, what's the point? Well, I'm glad you asked. And the point is that whereas, and listen carefully, that whereas the works of the flesh that Paul just spoke of in the previous words are produced by us because of remaining sin, the fruit of the Spirit, however, comes forth through us by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. A genitive of source or origin. The good fruits are produced by the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Now while again, as I mentioned in the first message last week, you and I who are Christians do in fact have a responsibility to bring forth good fruit in our lives, especially since all of the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit 
as listed here, are commanded of us in the New Testament, just as John MacArthur rightly notes. We must, however, brethren, also remember that chiefly, most prominently, any good fruit that comes from us is always connected to the Holy Spirit by virtue of our union with Christ. And so, you see, dear ones, in and of ourselves, we cannot produce, underscored, we cannot produce the beautiful fruits of the Spirit, which Paul will go on to speak of in the following words, which are to come forth from us, not generically, no, but towards one another in the church. Ah, but with the Holy Spirit's help, through our abiding or staying close to Jesus day by day, you and I will be a fruitful people. We will be Christ-like people. And this through the supernatural power which the Holy Ghost works in us. In fact, church, this is what our lives will continually be like by the grace of God. For as Paul says here, look at it carefully in your Bibles, the fruit of the Spirit is, not was, but is, love, joy, and peace, etc. And the present tense is shows us that this fruit bearing will be continual in the lives of God's true children. It will be habitual. It will be ongoing. And why? Well, it's because God, having begun a good work in us, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Blessed be his name. The fruit of the Spirit, not was, but is. These are the things that will continue to mark out true Christians all of their days by the help and grace of God. And so here then is where we conclude our second overview concerning the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Today we've considered the immediate context and setting of our subject more closely, right up to our text in view. And this, so that we could understand our subject properly. And so, as I begin then to wind down. For this afternoon, I want to do so by speaking firstly to you here this day, who are the true people of God in this place, my brothers, my sisters. To you who have been saved with the evidence of a fruit-bearing life. What can I say to you? Well, there are three things. First, since according to verse 13 of this chapter, true Christian freedom means serving the brethren in the church through love, we must ask ourselves, are we doing this? Second, since according to verse 16 of this chapter, walking in the Spirit is an ongoing command which we are to fulfill by God's grace, which is seen by us yielding the fruits of the Spirit, we must ask ourselves, are we doing this? And then third, since according to verse 19 and following of this chapter, the works of the flesh 
our sin, and at times they will still come forth from us, we need to ask ourselves the question, are we repenting when they do? There we have it. Three applications, right from the passage. Let's talk about them together for a few minutes. Number one, since according to verse 13 of this chapter, true Christian freedom means what? Not living loosely in the church, not living rebelliously, no, but rather serving one another. How does Paul say? Through love, dia, by means of love. That's what Paul says. Use your freedom in this way. And so you and I must ask ourselves as Christians here this day, are we doing this? Are we doing this? Can you think of someone in recent days whom you have served through love, by loving service, by loving kindness? So-and-so had a need and you sought to meet that need by the grace of God. Through love, serve one another by means of love. Do this. Oh, brethren, this is crucial. This is crucial. Might it be said of us, when it's all said and done, as it were, that we were a what? Loving church. They will know you are Christians by your love. This is the distinguishing mark of the true child of God. Even as Paul will speak of when he speaks about the fruit of the Spirit, what does he say first? It's love. But not just love generically, but love specifically as a means of blessing my brothers and sisters in the church. Serving, the Greek word there for serving, making yourselves the slaves of your brethren through love. And so may it not be that in this church you just come to be served. I want everyone to serve me. I got all the problems, etc., etc. No, don't be self-centered here. Be other person-centered here. You say, well, that's just what our deacons are called to do. No, actually, it's what we're all called to do. All of you serve one another through love, not just the deacons. And thank God for their service. But if you see a problem, see something needs to be fixed or corrected, whatever it might be, Seek to do it as you're able. I would encourage you to talk to the deacons about it if it's something with reference to uh, the building or something like that. Don't just do stuff on your own. No, check with them. Check with me. But on a more practical level, people in the church have needs. We have uh, people who are giving birth and uh, people who are having physical trouble with this thing or that thing. I heard about this. How can I help you? So happy for the new baby. How can we serve you? That's the kind of church we want to be. How can we serve you? We are here to serve, even as I put in an email to someone this week. Here to serve. Why? Because this is very much like Jesus, is it not? He came not to be served, but rather to serve. And so are you being like Christ? Think about the fellowship time. We have... Fellowship meals here. Who's cleaning up after Irving? Such as, oh, this is for us, and blah, 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 blah. Isn't this great, wonderful? Someone's got to clean the tables. Someone's got to clean up. Do you just eat and leave? Hey, why don't we help this week? That's a nice thought. Snow's coming. 
Maybe we can serve the brethren through love by coming early, talking to one of the deacons who's been doing it all these years. Maybe that brother or sister can use my help. Serve one another through love. Bible study hour. Maybe hmm, someone's got to teach the kids or whatever it might be. Can I serve the brethren through love? Meals to be made, people to be visited. Oh, my friends, the list goes on and on and on. Ask yourself the question, when's the last time you served someone through love? And more specifically, as Paul is speaking to the churches in this church, in our church, it's very easy for Christians to read their Bible and take out the whole context of, oh, this is church service. Just think, well, I was nice to my neighbor the other day. I brought her some flowers. Well, that's fine. Context, though, is serving the brethren in the church. Might we be servants, secondly, since according to verse 16 of this chapter, walking in the Spirit is an ongoing command that we're to fulfill, which is seen how, not some, something generic or esoteric, no, but it's seen by us bearing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And so we must ask, are we doing this? This is the question when it comes to the matter, am I a true Christian? Are you a true Christian? The acid test is, what fruit are you bearing? You will know them by their fruit. Is your life commensurate with a biblical Christian? Don't talk to me about your opinions about this and that. Don't tell me about all your doctrines. Show me your life. Show me your life. How do you treat others in this church? How do you serve them? How do you help them? How do you pray for them? Talk is cheap, brethren. But we must bear the fruit of the Spirit. Not carnally produced, but Holy Spirit induced. Because anything that is carnally produced is short-lived. It'll spring up for a little while. Jesus speaks about the false convert. And look, it looks like it bears fruit. But when the heat and the rest come, it's scorched and it withers out. Bye-bye. But the true Christian continues to bear fruit. By the grace of God. As Paul clearly envisions here. And when he doesn't, when she doesn't, when, let's say, the true Christian expresses selfish ambition or dissensions or envies or hatred or contentions and jealousies, which a true Christian can do at times because of remaining sin, what do they do then? When someone expresses those things toward them in the church, what do they do then? Well, they don't leave the church. Rather, they speak to the one who sinned against them privately and lovingly and say, look, I'm not sure if there's something going on. I'm not sure if I've sinned against you. I'm not sure what the case is, but you know what? The fruit of the Spirit is dot, 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 and it's supposed to be expressed towards the brethren, and I'm getting zero of that towards you. Can you explain to me why this is? Have I done something wrong? If I have, I want to repent and ask for forgiveness. 
And if I haven't, and it's that you're sinning against me, which, by the way, is a biblical category. It's not just that we sin against God, as some Christians think. But Paul says to the Corinthians, you do sin against one another. And so if you sin against a brother or sister in this church because you lack those things which you're to be showing towards them, you own it and say, please forgive me. That wasn't my intention. And I ask for your forgiveness. Since according to verse 19 of this chapter, my third application, the works of the flesh are sin, and at times they come forth from us, we need to ask ourselves the question, do we repent when we sin? It's simple. Simple. And we all should be saying, yes, we do. Why wouldn't we repent? Repentance is a gift of God. It has been given to Israel to repent. Christian Israel repents. Christians used to be called repenters. So in the church, we sin against one another. Again, a biblical category. Would you please forgive me? In the home, please forgive me. Repent. We ask for forgiveness. We turn from our sins. And then positively, we seek to make amends. Not just, oh, I won't sin against you again because I've been loveless. loveless. But now positively, let me engage you and encourage you. Right? Repentance is not just the negative, the removal of a wrong deed, but it's the positive thing of putting on good things. You turn, then you bring forth good things in your life toward others by the grace of God. And so is this you here today, my dear brother, my dear sister? If you're in a good spiritual state, then I know that it is. Because I know you take sin seriously. So that when you sin or your conscience pricks you because you offended God in something or someone else, you say, oh Lord, forgive me. Oh, forgive me. I confess my sin to you. Confess it to others. Trusting you, O God, to forgive me of that sin and to work righteousness in its place. May it be said of us, dear ones, that we are repenters. Because that's what true Christians do. They own their sin. They repent of their sin. They ask for forgiveness. And this is because God has given them the grace to do this. And so as I close, I want to do so with a word to any non-Christian in this place, to you here who have lived lives which are characterized by the works of the flesh, being full of adultery, fornication, hatred, outburst of wrath, jealousies, etc. What can I say to you here this day, you whose life is marked, is characterized by ongoing sin in this regard? Without repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what I can say is simply this. Although verse 21 of this chapter says that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, please note that it does not say that they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. They will not You will not if you continue living 
in these things, but it doesn't say you cannot if in fact you turn from your sins against God and go to Christ as a hell-deserving sinner, begging Him for mercy, begging Him for grace, and begging Him for pardon. They will not enter the kingdom of God. They will not enter heaven if they continue in their sins. That's true of you, my dear friend, here this day. Ah! But it doesn't say you will not do this if you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the call of our passage is plain. Turn from your sins. All of these sins which are listed here. You might even say, but pastor, there are more sins that I've done that are not committed here. Yeah, Paul anticipated it and the like. You know the sins you've committed against God. Your lies, your theft, your pornography, your lust. Your anger, your drunkenness, your outburst of wrath, etc. You know all those things, and they're all before God. The holy God of heaven and earth, who has seen all that you've done. You say, well, I turned off the lights when I've done some of those things. Darkness does not blind the eyes of God. No, God sees all things. All things are naked and bare before him with whom we have to do. And so, my dear unsafe friend here this day, I just want you to understand that if you continue in your immorality, again, your pride, your sensuality, etc., you're not going to heaven. But this does not mean that you can't go to heaven if you turn even this very day from all those things which you know are not pleasing to God because they're an affront to his person, an affront to his law. You say, oh God, forgive me. I have sinned against you. And you say with the hymn writer of old, foul I, foul I fly to Christ the Savior to wash me lest I die. You go to Jesus Christ who in love 2,000 years ago went to the cross of Calvary for sinners like you and sinners like me. There at the cross, Jesus went as the sinless substitute to take the sins of sinners upon himself. That's what he did 2,000 years ago. And there he died as the just one for the unjust ones that he might bring us to God. There, 2,000 years ago, he accomplished the redemption of sinners, all kinds of sinners. Those sinners which are guilty of the sins that Paul speaks of in our passage. All those sins were laid upon Christ and in love and in grace he atoned for them once for all time. For every sinner who now turns from their sins and puts their trust in his accomplished work. So therefore, whoever you are this day who have not been reconciled to God, younger person, older person, anything in between, turn from your sins. Your sins which are stinking in the nostrils of God. And understand that while this God is so holy, he could damn you for all eternity. At the same time, he's the God who so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, let's pray together. Our great God, we are so thankful for your word, for indeed it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. And we pray, O God, that having considered this passage, that we would be ready to jump into the rest. Thanks for helping us, O great Holy Spirit. Thanks for animating and giving light from above. And so I pray now that you would seal what we've considered to our hearts and help us to be found walking in its truth all of our days. We pray all of these things through that wonderful name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.